us this morning. Uh, he and Judy are taking some uh, much-deserved time off, vacation time for him. And uh, so we need to just continue to pray for them. I think the family news this morning is that I think the, the, the uh, count of the Kratz family is still at eight. So that's good. That's a good thing. Uh, but we are uh, very blessed and privileged to have uh, Dr. Kevin Newman with us this morning. And uh, Dr. Newman is, is um, the uh, Vice President for Academic Affairs and a Professor of Bible and Theology at the Alaska Bible College in Glen Allen. Um, if, if you've uh, been following the announcements from the pulpit and, and some of the correspondence that's come out uh, over the last couple of months, um, our church, Anchorage Grace Church, is, is uh, working uh, with the uh, Alaska Bible College on a strategic partnership. Um, uh, and basically what that is, has meant is we've got uh, Kevin and, and the president of Alaska Bible College, Nick Ringer, uh, literally driving down from Glen Allen every week. It's a four-hour trip uh, down and then a four-hour trip back. Uh, so they can teach some Alaska Bible College classes here at Anchorage Grace um, to us on Thursday nights. And uh, I'm in Nick's class. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But the idea here is is Alaska Bible College has came to our church, came to our elder board and said, uh, you know, we've been praying about where we're headed as an organization, uh, as a ministry here in Alaska. And they've, they've got a very uh, outstanding and, and uh, pretty awesome infrastructure up in Glen Allen. Uh, their vision is to uh, kind of in three areas move forward. One is to um, look to come to the big population center here in Alaska and, and set up sort of a full-time operation of the Alaska Bible College here in Anchorage. And, uh, you know, that's uh, one of the reasons that they're wanting to partner with us, one of the reasons they've got some classes going here. Um, the second thing they're interested in doing is, is some transformational things with the campus up in Glen Allen. It's an amazing facility. It's it's in a one of the most beautiful parts of Alaska, and there's some tremendous opportunity there to do Christian conferencing and and uh, sort of uh, wilderness Bible camps and, and things like that, where they are looking to do that. The third thing they're interested in doing is uh, using uh, technology to reach um, rural rural Alaska and offer Alaska Bible College classes online using the internet. And so that certainly uh, is near and dear to the elder board at this church. Uh, with our missions commission, our desire to reach Alaska. And so we've got a very interesting nexus of interests and vision between our church and, and Alaska Bible College. And so uh, we're off to a great start. Um, they, uh, again, are doing the four-hour commute one way, so eight hours total drive uh, each week uh, and offering these classes. I'm in the inductive Bible study class by Nick Ringer. He, and, and, and Nick is, uh, besides being an academic slave driver, just a uh, just a tremendous teacher. And I'll tell you, it's it's been very, very enlightening to me, and and very much appreciated. And, and I'm anxious for more. And so um, I know that's true of, of Kevin's class as well. So um, what I'd like to do is kind of uh, allow him to speak more about that. But um, let me just tell you some credentials here of of what we're getting with Alaska Bible College. Kevin is, uh, has a doctorate of divinity from uh, Conservative Theological Seminary in Florida. He's got a master's of, uh, let's see, master of arts and a master of divinity from the Biblical Theological Seminary, and that's in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, I think is what you told me. He's been Alaska Bible College since 2001. He is a full-time pastor also at a uh, church in uh, Chistochina, Alaska. That's about an hour from Glen Allen. It's a native community. And so here again, um, a very busy guy putting a lot of miles on his car. 
and pastoring every week and preaching a sermon every week. Uh, buckle your seatbelts. You're in for a ride here. Um, we're going to go into Revelation uh, a little bit, and I think you're going to get a taste for what Alaska Bible College has to offer our church in terms of these classes. So um, without further ado, I'd like to invite you up, Kevin, and um, thank you for being here and look forward to another awesome sermon. Well, good morning. Good to see you today. It's good to be here. Thank you for the honor of being able to come and share with you today. As Steve said, I am uh, the Vice President for Academic Affairs, the Academic Dean at Alaska Bible College. And I'd like to start off today just with a little bit of a story, if I might. A number of years ago, there was a gentleman who wanted to become a lumberjack. And so he took his axe with him and he went down to the woods and he found the foreman of this lumberjack company and he went up to him and said, I'd like to have a job. And the foreman said, okay, I see you got your axe, show me what you got. If you do well enough, you got the job. So the young man went over to the tree and he took his axe and just a few swipes that tree was down and the foreman was impressed. And he said, well, if you can keep doing that, you got a job. Come tomorrow and start working. So the next day, the young man got there, and he went to work, and he was cutting down trees left and right, and the foreman was just amazed because his productivity was incredible. But after about a week and a half, the foreman noticed that this young man's productivity had gone down. Now, the foreman thought to himself, okay, you know, he, he got the job, and now he figures, I don't have to work that hard. Now I can start taking it easy. It's not that big of a deal. But so the foreman decided, well, I'm going to go watch him for a while. And he did, and he watched him, and sure enough, the young man wasn't taking time off. He wasn't, you know, uh, being a slouch. He was working just as hard, but he wasn't getting the same results, not the same productivity. So foreman stood there, and he watched, and he watched, and he watched him some more. Then he said to the young man, come here. He said, well, what? He said, well, I've noticed that over the last couple of weeks, your productivity is down. He says, but I notice you're, you're not working any less. You're still working just as hard. Let me see your axe. So the young man gave him his axe, and the foreman looked at it, and he said, now, son, when was the last time you sharpened this? And the young man looked at him and said, well, what do you mean? He said, you, you, you got to sharpen your axe, kid. He says, well, what, when was the last time? He said, I, I don't know. He said, I, I haven't sharpened it in a while. And he says, well, you've got to have your axe sharp if you want to be effective. My friends, I want you to know today that you've got to be sharp if you want to be effective in ministry or even in life. The axe we're speaking of is your ability to know, to study, and to live the word of God. Now, as you heard, I'm the academic dean. That means that I am thoroughly committed and convinced that biblical education is of utmost importance. And so uh, one of the reasons why I'm here today is to encourage you to come and take some of the classes that we offer here in Anchorage, right here at Anchorage Grace. And because I, I'm convinced that it's important that you stay sharp in God's word. And you might be thinking, well... Isn't church good enough? Isn't Sunday school and Bible study, you're telling me those things aren't good enough? 
Well, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. And you might say, well, that, that's kind of offensive. Well, my wife tells me I offend people all the time, so what's the difference? Might as well do it today as well. But I'm convinced that we need to be deep in the Word of God. Just a surface knowledge is not good enough. We've got to stay sharp. So allow me to give you a little bit of a heads up as to what's coming next semester. Beginning in January, you'll be getting some more information about this, but we'll actually be teaching three classes here next semester. Two of the classes will be held on Thursday nights uh, from 6 to 9 p.m. right here at your church. The first one will be taught by Nick Ringer. Uh, it is called PBI, or Principles of Biblical Interpretation. And basically what it does is it goes deeper into the different genres of Scripture, how we study poetry, how do we study gospels and history and so forth. In a sense, it is the sequel to the class he's teaching now, Principles of Inductive Bible Study. But just in case you might be sitting there thinking, well, didn't take the first class, that means I can't take the second. No, you can still jump in and you'll still get a lot out of it, I promise you. Second class, I will be teaching myself, and it's called apologetics. Apologetics is a defense of the faith. It is how we answer a, a questioning and doubting and critical world. And it is commanded by God that we be able to do this. Peter tells us that we are to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. In just a little bit, we're going to take a look at what part of that hope is that you and I have as believers. But we are commanded to be ready, prepared to share that. Let me just give you an example. We all remember the horrors of 9-11, of that day. What some people may not realize, though, is that for the next three weeks after that, that event took place, churches around our country were full. They were packed to the gills. People were coming to church in droves that had never been there before. Why? Because they wanted answers. How could this happen? Why could God allow this to happen? But after three weeks, the churches were back to their normal size again. Why? Because the answers they were looking for, they weren't finding. You and I need to be prepared to answer those questions as to what, what do we do? How do we understand this concept of evil, pain, and suffering? How do we know that there's a God? How do we know who Jesus Christ is? Those are some of the things that we'll be examining and studying in apologetics. Again, that'll be on Thursday nights. The third class is going to be taught by Dr. Eileen Starr, and it'll be on three weekends, Friday and Saturdays, one weekend in January, one in February, one in March, and it is called Real Teaching and Learning. And it is uh, directed towards anybody that wants to teach. Uh, if you're a Christian school teacher, if you're a Sunday school teacher, uh, you teach children in any kind of setting or even adults, it's a class that will help you get a better grasp on preparing and delivering lessons. And I encourage you to come and check that out as well. And so, again, I, I encourage you, we, we thank you uh, for your participation this past semester, and we just pray that we'll see more and more and more of you in our classes as the time goes on. The fact of the matter is, is that I could stand here and I could talk to you about Alaska Bible College and Glen Allen. Okay, there's not much to tell you about Glen Allen. But I can tell you a whole lot about Alaska Bible College and what God is doing there and where we've been and where we're going and what our alumni are doing and, uh, and how God is using them all over the world. But 
That's really not why I'm here today. I'm here because what's going to make a difference in our lives is the Word of God. So let me start off this morning by asking you a simple question. And the question is this. How many of you are married? Go ahead, raise your hands. All right, good. Now, sometimes when I ask that question, I follow it up with a second question of how many of you are happily married. But I'm not going to ask that. Because inevitably, what happens is somebody raises their hand and the, the other person doesn't. And then they have some kind of argument on the way home. And, you know, why didn't you raise your hand? Well, I thought you were raising your hand. And it just becomes a mess. So we're not going to go there. But let me ask you another question. How many of you know that whether or not you're married now, you are going to get married again in the future? Oh, just a few hands went up. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, nah, that's not going to happen. I'm not getting married again. Now, some of you are thinking that because you're wondering, you're looking and saying, my husband, my wife is the best in the world. Nobody could ever compare. And so I'm never going to get married again because what would be the point? I thought I'd hear a few amens there. Okay. Others of you might be thinking, you've got to be kidding me. After what I've been through this time, I'm not getting married again. But the fact of the matter is, is if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, you will be married again, this time to the Lamb of God, to Jesus Christ himself. And we are going to take a look today at this wedding of the Lamb, the marriage of the Lamb. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, verses 7 through 10, is we examine the marriage of the Lamb and what it's going to be like for you and me someday that when we stand together with Christ as his bride. Paul makes it clear in the book of Ephesians that the church is the bride of Christ. And so we, as his church, are his bride. And what we read here today in his word is talking about you. So when you hear reference to the bride, that's you that God is talking about. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 7, he says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The wedding of the Lamb. First thing I want us to look at here this morning is the announcement. The announcement of this wedding. We find that again in verse 7 when he says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage of the Lamb has come. Now, I've got to tell you, I have done a lot of weddings, and I've been invited to a lot of weddings like most of you have over the years. And as that happens, we get those invitations in the mail, don't we? And they tell us the time and the date and who it is that's getting married, or at least that's the way it used to be. We actually had a couple from the college this a uh, couple years ago um, use Facebook as their invitations. Don't do that. That's tacky. Uh, uh, 
send, I mean, you spend some money, spend it, send it out in the mail. It's one day, right? I mean, deserves a little bit of money. But anyway, you get this announcement in the mail and it tells you who it is that's getting married and when and where and the time and so forth. Well, here we find the announcement of this wedding and we're told it's the marriage, the wedding of the Lamb. Now, I've got to tell you something. I did my doctoral dissertation on the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, there are 40 different names and titles for Jesus Christ in this book. More than any other book of the New Testament, more than any other book of the Bible, there's more names and titles of Jesus in this book than all the rest combined. Over 40 different names and titles of Christ. And I don't know about you, but every time I look at this, I've got to ask the question, why is it addressed as the marriage of the Lamb? Why not the marriage of Jesus? The marriage of Christ? The marriage of the King? The marriage of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Master, firstborn from the dead, any one of those different names, but God doesn't use those. He says it's the marriage of the Lamb. Why? Well, as I've said, I've gotten many announcements in the mail, and every t- sometimes I'll get one and I'll look at it and I'll say, well, I'm not going to this one. And my wife says, why not? And I'll say, because I don't even know these people. Why are they sending me an announcement to their wedding. I don't know who they are. She says, well, what do you mean? And she says, let me look at it. So I give it to her, and she says, you know them. I said, no, I don't. She says, yeah, it's so-and-so. I said, well, I don't know them by that name. And she says, well, that's their real name. I said, well, how am I supposed to know their real name? That's all I ever know them by. And so of all the names of Jesus in the book of Revelation, of all the names that God has given his son, why the wedding of the Lamb? I'll tell you why. Because it is the Lamb of God that we fell in love with. You see, we didn't fall in love with the King, although that's what He is. We didn't fall in love with the Lord, although He is that too. We did not fall in love with a Creator. We did not fall in love with a Savior. We did not fall in love with any of those other titles. We fell in love with the Lamb of God who came and gave Himself for us. We fell in love with the Lamb who put himself on that cross and bled and died and still wears those scars today. John tells us earlier in his book of Revelation that he saw the Lamb looking as if it had been slain. The scars of the cross still on him throughout eternity so that we will always look at him and know that that is the Lamb who died for us. And that's the Lamb that we fell in love with. And so throughout eternity, we will be reminded that it is the Lamb of God who loves us. And we get to spend eternity with him. And so he announces it. The wedding, the marriage of the Lamb. Enjoy the marriage of the Lamb. Second thing I want us to notice here this morning is the actual ceremony. The actual ceremony. You say, well, I I don't see that here in the text. Well, no, it's not there. And you say, well, why not? Well, because when John wrote this, they knew what the ceremony was. He didn't have to go through it. So let me go through it for you today. But before I do so, let me remind you of how things work today. Today, this is how it works. The guy, normally goes up to the girl and asks her to marry him and presents her with a ring, a nice-sized diamond if he's lucky. She will say yes, hopefully, at which time they become engaged and they are now 
fiancés. And for the rest of their time as an engaged couple, they get to know each other. They're making wedding plans. They're planning a ceremony. And they are falling deeper in love with each other. At least that's the idea. And then that day comes when they have the actual ceremony. And they all gather with all their family and friends. And everybody watches as the bride walks down that center aisle with her gown flowing. And everybody stands up and they are all amazed at the beauty of the bride. And they come down, they say their I do's, they kiss, they go off to the reception, they go off to the honeymoon, and then it's happily ever after. And again, I thought I'd hear some amens. All right, you work that out when you get home. Happily ever after. Now that you remember all that, forget about it. Because that's not the way it happened back then. Today, the focus is on the bride. Not so back at that time. Back during the time of Christ, this is what happened. There were a number of steps. Step number one is what we call the betrothal. The betrothal. Now, this is how it would work. The groom would leave his father's house and come to the house of the bride. Okay. Now, in order to understand this, you need to realize that a son at that time would always, let me say that again, always live with his parents. There is never any question of where is he going to move off to and live. He would live with his mother and father for his entire life. So if you had a bunch of sons, they were always living with you. Some of you are thinking, wow. Glad I didn't live back then and glad I didn't have sons because I just want him out of the house eventually. So he would leave his father's house, come to the house of the bride, where he would sit down with the bride's father and they would negotiate. Yes, you heard me right. They would negotiate on a bride price. How much he was going to pay to make her his wife. Now, some of you guys are sitting there thinking, pfft. If that was the way today, I wouldn't be getting married. But back then, that's the way they did it. It was a contract. And so he would negotiate and he would decide, this is how much I'm paying. Now, by the way, he got a dowry, so he got something when he married her. It wasn't just a one-way street. After they had agreed upon the price, they would take a glass and they would have a drink of wine. That drink of wine was sealing the contract to say the price has been decided and this is what will be paid. When that happens, they are now betrothed. Now, let me explain to you about betrothal. Because today, when you're engaged, if you want to get unengaged, all you have to do is say, change my mind. And the girl hopefully gives the ring back, right? Maybe. Or the guy, you know, says, hey, I changed my mind and don't want to go through with this. And there's tears and so forth and maybe some anger. But it's over. It's done. Not so back then. Back then, once you were betrothed, you literally had to go through divorce proceedings to get unbetrothed, to get unengaged. It was a whole legal mess because a contract had been made and it had been signed by drinking that glass of wine. And so... You had to go through a whole mess in order to do it. And back that time, betrothal was basically this idea. You had to take care of each other. You had all the uh, responsibilities of marriage, but none of its privileges. Now, if you don't understand what that means, talk to your parents afterwards, okay? (laughs) 
Or if you really, if they're gone, find somebody because you better understand what that means. But you had all the responsibilities, but none of the privileges. And that was a time that you would get closer to each other. So you would become betrothed. Now, second stage, step number two, the groom goes back to his father's house. Okay. He leaves the house of the bride, goes back to his father's house where he does one thing. He prepares a place for them to live. And again, there could be three, four, five, six generations of family living in the same household. And so his job is to build on an extension, to make it bigger, to make it so that they can live there. He said, well, what's the bride doing? Bride's got her job as well, because before the groom would leave, he would give her two things. One, he would give her a tunic, which is basically her wedding underwear. It's what she would wear under her wedding gown. Secondly, he'd give her the linen and the material that she would need to make her gown. So while the groom is gone getting the house ready, she is making her wedding gown. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. Okay? So they are separated but still responsible to each other. He's preparing a place for them to live. She's preparing her wedding gown, and they are apart. For how long? Well, could be days, could be weeks. Typically, it was months and even years. You heard me, years. Because you see, at that time, it was not unusual for a girl the age of six to get betrothed. Oh, she wouldn't get married until she was 12 or 13, but she would get betrothed at the age of six. And so she could be betrothed or engaged for up to six to seven years and promised to that guy. Now, by the way, ladies, some of you might be glad that you're not living back then because, again, at the age of 12 or 13 is when you get married. So a young girl who reached the age of 17 or 18 who was not married was considered an old maid. People looked at her and said, something wrong with her. Why isn't she married? Why is nobody willing to pay the price for her? Something is desperately wrong with her. That has no reflection on anybody here today. Now, step number three. The groom returns. When? When he wants to. It's not up to the bride. In fact, the bride has no knowledge of it. He leaves his father's house, brings his entourage with him back to the house of the bride, where as they come close, his best man has a job. And his best man's job is this. If they are wealthy enough, they have a shofar, a ram's horn, and he blows that trumpet. If not, he simply shouts and says, the groom is on his way, get ready. And so the bride, who is at her house, hears the trumpet, hears the shout, and knows, I need to go get dressed. And by that time, her gown better be ready. Because if it's not, she's going anyway. You notice, in our ceremony, it's all about the bride. In their ceremony, it's all about the groom. Bride doesn't know. Bride doesn't really matter as much. Although she is important and special, the focus is on the groom and not on the bride in those. And so he comes back and he, then he takes her and he goes back to the father's house. Okay? So did you get that? He comes back to get his bride, picks her up, and everybody, the groom and all of his entourage, the bride and all of her entourage, then go back 
to the house of the groom, where the next stage takes place, and that's the wedding feast. The wedding feast. Now, let me tell you what happens here. When they come back to the, the house of the groom, two things happen. One, there is a very brief ceremony. Very brief. And here's what they do. They would take the glass that they had drank earlier that sealed the promise of how much he was going to pay. They would put it on the ground, and then he would smash it. You still see Jewish people doing that today. You say, what does that mean? Well, again, remember, marriage is a contract. By smashing that cup, what you're saying is, this contract is set for life. The price has been paid, and there are, to put it in our terminology, no take-backs. In other words, she's yours now, and the groom is saying, now she belongs to me, I paid the price, she is my bride. She's my prized possession, in a sense. Then they go into what is called the hoopah, the marriage chamber, and they consummate the marriage. From there comes a feast. This feast would last one week in length. You heard me right, one week in length. And if you were invited to come, basically you would be invited when the betrothal took place. So years later, when the wedding feast comes, you have to drop everything and go to this feast and stay there for the entire week. And you say, wow, yeah, wow. Let me uh, make that wow even bigger. Because according to Jewish law, in the first century, this is what could happen. If you went to a wedding feast and you were not happy, you didn't like the food, you didn't like the wine, you didn't like the entertainment, you could actually sue the bride and groom for missed wages that you lost because you took off work to come to that wedding feast. Now that kind of puts the wedding supper of Cana, John chapter 2, in a new perspective, doesn't it? Jesus turns the wood into wine. What he's doing is saving the skin of that young married couple, isn't he? Because they would have been threatened with the lawsuit because they ran out of wine. Jesus saves the day by turning that water into wine and preserves them and sets them off on a good foot rather than bankrupt as they begin their life together. Now, during this time, the bride remains in the hoopah. She remains in the bridal chamber the entire week. The groom can come out if he wants to, but typically he doesn't. He stays in there with her for that entire week. Now, when that week is over, then comes the final step, and that is everybody, the bride, the groom, both entourages, and everybody that was invited, go back to the house of the bride, where she is introduced, unveiled, as the bride of the groom, and everybody welcomes her and celebrates before they go back and spend the rest of their life at the house of the groom and the groom's father. Now, with all that being said, let me connect the dots for you, just in case you weren't following along. Step number one, the betrothal. The groom leaves the house of his father. Jesus, we're told in Philippians chapter 2, left the glory of heaven to become a man and came down to earth, coming to the house of his bride where you and I live. So he left his father's house, comes down to the house of the bride where he agreed upon a price, which was his blood on the cross, his death, 
is the price that he paid to make us his wife, to make us his bride. At the Last Supper in John chapter 14, Jesus took that cup and he says, This cup, this glass of wine is now the new covenant, the new testimony, the new contract in my blood. And he says, I promise I will pay this price. From that point on, we became the betrothed of Jesus Christ. Which means that right now, that's the stage we're in. Now think about that just for a second. Think about what it's like for engaged couples today. Because during that time, that's the time that they should be spending time together. They should be getting to know each other. They should be falling deeper in love with each other. It is not a time when they say, well, let me make sure I made the right choice. Let me go out and date whoever I can to make sure this is the right one for me. There is no unfaithfulness. It is faithfulness and growth and love and dedication and commitment. That's the way it ought to be for us right now. We are in that betrothal stage, and we ought to be faithful and growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ, looking forward to what we've got coming in the future. Well, now, that's the next step. Because step number two, you notice, is the groom leaves. In John chapter 14, Jesus said this, I am going to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. Hear what he said? John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am going to my father's house where I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is presently preparing our place, the place for his bride, the place for you and me in glory right now, which means right now we ought to be making our wedding gown. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute, so we'll get back to that. Step number three, the groom returns. Paul tells us in Thessalonians and Corinthians that at that time there will be the trumpet blast or the shout and the dead in Christ shall rise and we who are alive shall meet him in the air and we will be with Christ forever. We'll be with Christ forever. And he takes us back to his father's house where the marriage is consummated at the Bema seat of Christ. Then comes the feast. And again, my friends, it is no coincidence that the book of Daniel, in describing the future time, calls that time of the tribulation the 70th week, one week of Daniel. One week, seven years, not in seven days, but seven years, that you and I will be enjoying Christ in the wedding chamber while all hell is breaking loose on earth during the time of the tribulation. When that time is over... Christ and the bride, uh, as we find later on in chapter 19, come back to earth where we are introduced to the entire world as the bride of the Lamb. You know, i got to tell you something. <clears throat> I, I've taught this passage numerous times. I've preached on it numerous times. It never, ever ceases to blow me away. Looking at these facts and seeing how the pieces fit together and then knowing that I am the bride of Christ and what he paid for me and that he is preparing a place for me now where he and I can spend eternity together never ceases to just make me say, wow, that groom, that lamb is mine. He chose me. You know, I'm still amazed sometimes that my wife shows me. I'm still amazed that she said yes. And yet, 
as amazing as that is to me, it is even more amazing to me that Jesus Christ chose me. And he chose you. And he knows us by name. And he's making us his bride. The next thing I want us to look at this morning, a third thing, is the attire of the bride. The attire of the bride. What is the bride going to look like? Well, like I said, being a pastor, I get to do a lot of weddings. And whenever I do them, and when I come home, if my wife hasn't been there, she asks me two questions. Question number one is going to be, how did it go? And I usually tell her, well, it went okay. Nothing caught on fire, unless it did. Nobody tripped and fell, unless they did. Nothing really bad happened. It was nice. It was okay. Second question is always going to be the same. What was the bride wearing? I see some of these ladies mouthing the question before I even said it. You know, I've learned over the years that I cannot say, I think she was wearing white. <laughs> Doesn't cut it. She wants more detail. So I got to tell her the dress. I got to tell her everything about it. And she wants to know now, not too much in detail, because she still needs to know that her dress is prettier and there is no bride more beautiful than her on their wedding day and that I really wasn't looking that closely at all in the first place. <laughs> but she wants to know what the bride was wearing. So if you and I are the bride, don't you want to know what you're going to be wearing? Sure you do. Well, look at what we're told here, verse 8. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Remember I told you that before the groom goes back to prepare the place, he gives the bride two things. One is the tunic or the underwear. The other is the linen to make her gown. Well, we're told here that the gown is made out of the righteous deeds, the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, here it is. Here's what I call it. You are weaving on earth what you're going to be wearing in heaven. Let me say that again. We are weaving on earth what we are going to be wearing in heaven. Our righteous acts, what we do for Jesus Christ, is what our wedding gown is going to look like on that day. Which means that there are going to be some Christians standing there that day in nothing but their underwear because they've done nothing for Jesus Christ. There are going to be some there whose gowns are not finished because they started out well, but they didn't finish strong. They gave up somewhere along the way. And then there will be those that are dedicated and committed and work and serve Jesus Christ each and every day whose gowns are going to be the most beautiful that you could ever begin to imagine. And we will be beautiful for our groom. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Being beautiful for our groom, making him look better than he already is and that he, he, than he ever could be. You know, there's a saying, you, you know, I've probably heard it before. They, they say that no such thing as an ugly bride, right? Have you heard that before? I've seen pictures. They lie. They're, I know you're saying, oh, you're just mean. Well, yeah, but I'm so good at it. But here's why they say that. No such thing as an ugly bride, because on that wedding day, maybe no other day of her life, but on that wedding day, she knows she is loved with a love from her groom that never ends. And so she is radiant. She is 
beautiful because she knows that she is going to be walking down that aisle and she's going to be looking to the eyes of her groom and he loves her and he's dedicating his life to her that day. And that's what we are. We are the beautiful bride of Jesus Christ who know that someday he's coming back to take us to be with him the way we shall spend eternity. Why? Not because of anything we've done, not because we're worthy, not because he said who's the most beautiful, but because he chose us and he loved us and he reached out to us before we ever reached out to him. And we get to spend eternity with this Christ, this Lamb of God. Beautiful because he makes us so. Radiant because his love flows in us and on us and through us. That's the attire of the bride. I want you to notice another thing here as we look at this text. That's the assurance. We find it in verse 9. The assurance. Verse 9, he says, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now let's stop there for a second. And you say, Okay, wait a minute. Who is that? Who are the people that are invited? Well, I can tell you who it's not. It's not you. Why? Because you're the bride. And you can have a wedding without guests, but you can't have much of a wedding without the bride. Now, can you? So, you are the bride. I am the bride. We're not the guests. You say, well, who are the guests? The guests are the Old Testament saints and tribulational saints. You say, well, wait a minute. Daniel, Abraham, Joseph, David, they're the guests to the wedding. They're not the bride. Well, that's what the scripture says. You say, well, that doesn't seem quite fair. Well, listen, all I can tell you is I don't know why God did that. I'm just glad that he made me the bride. And you can say, well, what about them? They just get to be the guests. That's not right. But let me tell you something. It is a whole lot better than the alternative, isn't it? They're in glory watching the wedding of the Lamb. Because if they weren't there, they'd be in hell because they would be separated from Christ. Now notice again, verse 9 goes on and he says, And he said to me, these are the true words of God. These are the true words of God. Now, why does God say that? Why does the angel have to tell John this is true? Because if you look at John at this time, he's watching this. He's knowing that this is him. He gets to be the bride of the lamb and he is overwhelmed. And he's thinking to himself like you and I should be too. This is too good to be true. How could God choose me? Why did he choose me? Why does he love me? Look at me. I haven't been faithful. I haven't been good, but he loves me. He chooses me. He makes me pure and spotless and blameless. Why does he love me? And we think this can't be happening. And God says, this is the truth. This is your hope. This is what you and I have to look forward to. We know that we will spend eternity with Christ. Because of the blood that he spilled on that cross and because of his great, ever, never-ending love for you and for me, we get to be the bride. And so we can say, I don't understand it all, I don't get it all, and it sounds too good to be true, but I know that it's going to happen because God says so. You see, that's the hope that we have, isn't it? That's part of the hope that Peter is talking about that we need to have an answer for. Why do you believe that? Because the Bible says so. That's too good to be true. I know, but God says so, and God's going to do it, and nothing is too difficult for my God. 
And what he says, he means. And what he means, he says. And when he says that I'm the bride of Christ and that you're the bride of Christ, that's who we are. We're righteous, pure, spotless, and blameless in his eyes. Well, that brings us to the last thing that we want to look at here, and that's the action. The action. And here is where we ask the question of, so what? You say, well, shouldn't ask that question. Listen, I want you to understand there's nothing irreverent, nothing blasphemous about coming to the word of, and asking the question of, so what? Because that's where we get down and say, okay, this is what the Bible says. So what does that have to do with my life? What now does God want me to think, know, believe, and do now that I've read this? Because you see, if all we do is read the Word of God and we don't put it into practice, well, then why are we reading the Word of God in the first place? We're wasting our time. You see, it needs to be studied. It needs to be understood, but it needs to be applied, needs to be put into practice, and that's the action that we're talking about here. That's why James says that we need to be not only hearers of the Word of God, but doers of the Word of God. And he says that it's kind of like a mirror, James tells us, a mirror that a man, not a woman in this case, but a man looks in, sees himself, and then makes the change. He said, well, why does he choose a man there? Because a woman is always going to make the change. A man is more likely to look in the mirror, see that his hair's messed up, you know, maybe even his zipper's down or whatever, his shirt's not buttoned right, and say, good enough, and go off on his own. There's no way a woman's ever going to do that, is she? In fact, every time she sees any reflection, she's going to look and fix herself and make sure she looks good. And ladies, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not putting you down, because when you look beautiful, you make us look good. Because, trust me, we need it. We need all the help we can get to make us look good. And so, ladies, you do that. And James says, look, studying the Word of God and not putting it into action is a waste of time. So what action does God want from us? Number one, he wants us to wait. He wants us to wait. Why? Because we are in that stage where we are waiting for our groom to return. Remember, we're in the betrothal stage. We, he is there, there in his father's house preparing a place for us. We are weaving our gown. That's what our job is right now. We're weaving our gown, waiting for our groom to come. You say, well, can we do anything else? No, we have to wait. Patience is a virtue, they say. My wife says, I don't have that one. I think she's right. But you say, well, do we have any other choice? Well, we have to wait. And in that waiting, we have the second action. That's we need to watch. We need to watch. We need to be looking. You say, for what? Looking to see, are the days coming closer? Are the seasons coming near? Are we getting closer to the time when our groom will come and that trumpet blast will sound and we shall be with him and we shall be with him throughout eternity? Are we getting there? Yes, we are. And we are closer today than we ever have been before. Now, I'm not going to make any predictions of times and dates or years or anything like that. All I know is we're getting closer. I remember a story about a young boy who went to spend some time with his grandparents at their house. And as he was playing in the parlor, the grandfather clock started to chime. And it went off one and two and three. And he listened to it and he counted it and it got to 11, 12, 13, 14, 
15. And the little boy got up and he ran into the kitchen to his grandmother and grandpa. And he said, Grandma and Grandpa, guess what? It's later than it ever has been before. My friends, it's later than it ever has been before. We are closer to that time when Christ is coming back than we were just a day, just a year, just a moment ago. And we are going to be with him someday, and so we need to be watching. Why? Because we need to be ready. We need to be ready. Because we don't get the opportunity to say, well, hold on, Christ. Uh, Hold up up there because I still got some things to get done down here. You know, I have some students that come to me and they say, you know, I'm excited about Christ coming back, but some things I want to do on earth before that time comes. I want to get married, want to have some kids, want to get involved in ministry, want to do this, want to do that. And I just say, well, then you better get started because you don't know when he's coming. Watch. The third thing we need to be doing, our third action is we need to be worshiping. We need to be worshiping Jesus Christ. Because that's what we're going to be doing. Look at what John does, verse 10. I fell down at his feet to worship him, but the angel said, no, worship God. Do you realize that throughout eternity we're going to be worshiping Jesus Christ? And you might say, that sounds awfully boring to me. I mean, if heaven's just going to be church 24 hours a day, is that really what I'm looking forward to? Let me tell you something. Actually, let me tell you a couple things. We need to be watching. We need to be waiting. We need to be worshiping. And if you do not look at the worship of heaven as something that is appealing, something that you really can't wait to do, let me make this statement to you. And that is that you probably have never really worshiped God on earth. Because when you've been in a spirit and attitude of worship here, the rest of the world drifts away and it is you and Christ alone and you don't want that time to ever stop. And so if you've never experienced that, well then, yeah, I can understand why looking at heaven might seem a little bit boring. But let me tell you something else. The Bible tells us that heaven is going to be better than anything we can imagine. Well, I can imagine something pretty great. Let me tell you what I imagine. For me, there's nothing better in heaven than this, than to be there in the arms of Jesus Christ, to feel his arms wrapped around me, to look into his eyes, to see the love that is coming out from them, to hear him whisper in my ear and say, my child, I love you, and I could do that for eternity. And if heaven is going to be better than that, then you can understand why I'm a little bit homesick and ready to go, but willing to stay. Christ says it's going to be better than anything we can imagine. And that is our hope. That is our glory. But we need to be waiting. We need to be watching. We need to be worshiping. We need to be ready. Reminds me of another story of about a young girl who got engaged to her fiancé, who soon after the engagement got shipped off to war. And so she was left home alone while he was off in battle, and he promised her that as soon as he got home, they would get married. And so... He would write letters to her all the time, and she'd write letters back. But after a time, the letters from the battle stopped coming, and she didn't hear anything from him. 
and days rolled into weeks and weeks rolled into months and months into years and she didn't hear anything and people told her, give it up, he's dead, he's not coming back. And she said, no, he is my love, he is my betrothed, I'm going to stay faithful and committed and love him no matter what. And one day when her hope was almost dashed, she went up to her bedroom, she took out her wedding dress And she put it on just to look at herself in the mirror, just to imagine what might have been. Unbeknownst to her, he wasn't dead. He had been a prisoner of war and just got released. And he came right off the plane, right to their house. And he knocked on the door and her mother answered the door and he said, where is she? And the mother said, she's up in her bedroom. And so he ran up the stairs. But before he barged in, he thought, wait, let me look through the keyhole and see what my beloved is doing. And he did. And he looked through and he saw her standing there in her wedding gown, looking in the mirror. And he thought to himself, she said she'd be ready, but I never thought she'd be that ready. (laughs) My friends, we need to be that ready. Because we don't know when he's coming back. We need to wait. We need to watch. We need to worship. We need to work. We're weaving here on earth what we're going to be wearing in heaven. We are working now for Jesus Christ. And yes, we're going to be working throughout eternity. But we need to be doing everything we can now for him. Not for ourselves. Not for something that's temporary that we're going to leave behind, but something that's eternal, something that is wonderful, something that is done out of love for our Lord and Savior, for our Lamb, for our groom. Each and every moment. So that His radiance shines through us. So that His love is seen in us. And people want to know Christ because of what they see and hear in you and me. As His bride. The bride of the Lamb. We need to be waiting. We need to be watching. We need to be worshiping him as we'll do so throughout eternity. And we need to be working, getting ourselves ready for that time, for that moment when Christ comes back and we get to spend eternity with him. Too good to be true, maybe, but it's going to happen because God says so. And it's something we can look forward to. And it's something every day we can wake up and wonder, Jesus, Lamb of God, is this going to be the day when I see you face to face? Told you I've done a lot of weddings. Whenever I perform a wedding, I have this little tradition, little custom of myself. After the rehearsal, I always take the bride and the groom aside and I take them off by themselves with me and I ask them two questions. Question number one is, are you excited? And so far, every single bride, every single groom has said, yes, we're excited. We're getting married tomorrow. Isn't that going to be wonderful? We are getting married. We are so excited. We can hardly wait. Then I ask my second question. Are you ready? And so far, up until this point, the second question always receives the same response. No. No, we're not ready. Got to get our hair done. Got to go pick up this. Got to do that. Got this to do and this to do and that. And over here and running around. And they know the day. They know the hour. They know the time when she will walk down that aisle. And they know all of that. And yet we know none of that. So we need to be ready because we don't know the day. We don't know the hour. We don't know the time. 
So let me end today by asking you those same two questions. Now that we've looked at the wedding of the Lamb, now that you know that you are His bride and you will spend eternity with Him, the first question is, are you excited? You should be. Second question is, are you ready? And if the answer is, not quite, not yet, my friends, we need to change that answer to yes, I'm ready. When my groom comes, I'll be ready, waiting for him with open arms. Working, watching, waiting, worshiping here. Because I'll be doing that with him throughout eternity. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father God, we thank you and praise you that you have made us your bride. Oh God, we know we're not worthy. We know we've done nothing to make ourselves ready. But God, you have claimed us. You have paid the price in the death of Jesus Christ. You have given us that glass of wine as a seal and as a contract. And you have made us your own. Even now you are working to prepare a place for us. Lord, let us work so that our gown is beautiful and we can be beautiful for you. Not only on that day, but Lord, every day. Others might see your beauty, your radiance, your glory, and your love in us. So, Lord, be magnified and glorified in us. Help us to be ready for that day, ready every moment of the day. And let us look forward to that time when we will spend eternity with our Lamb, our Groom, our God. In whose name we pray, amen. Well, thank you, Dr. Newman, Kevin. Hopefully uh, you got a little bit of a taste for what uh, Alaska Bible College has to offer here at Anchorage Grace. I, I did notice that when uh, Kevin mentioned he did his doctoral thesis on, on Revelation that Vicki and Ashley and Tanya and Tim all kind of perked up because our final project is on Revelation Chapter 3. So we may be looking for some hints afterwards. Um, it, it really is... Uh, uh, just a tremendous um, blessing that at the enterprise here at 12407 Pintail, we have a phenomenal Christian education um, happening here with Grace Christian School, of course. Nate Davis is here, our, our pastor and uh, headmaster of Grace Christian School. Um, this place is, as Jeff Kratz would say, going and blowing all week long with, with ministries and things happening with the school. Uh, we've got uh, missions outreach with our missions commission mentioned that earlier with a nexus with Alaska Bible College. Uh, we've got men's group. We've got uh, women's ministries. We've got small groups. If you're not plugged in somewhere, uh, do so, please. Um, it, it really is urgent, and uh, we need you. We, we are the body of Christ, and uh, we need to be excited, and we need to be ready. So thank you again for a great message, and uh, really appreciate that. Uh, let's, let's pray one more time, and then uh, you'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, just a great message this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the depth of your word, the truth of your word. God, I thank you that uh, we can have a, a Bible church, a Bible preaching, believing, emphasizing church here at this address. Thank you for the fact that uh, the more we study, the deeper it is, and, and we literally can't ever find the bottom to the motherload, Lord, that uh, 
someday we'll get to see you face to face and um, we'll know more. But uh, God, I thank you for your word. So I pray that we would absorb it. Your Holy Spirit would uh, minister to us, that we would go out excited today and we would get ready. We would use this afternoon and this next week to get ready. Thank you, Father. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Thanks.